You're listening to I Fucking Love This Record, a music podcast hosted by me, the Derek Care of You. I hope you enjoy the show. Today, we're going to knock them dead by talking about Shout at the Devil, the second album by Motley Crue. It was produced by Tom Mormon for Electra Records and released on September 26, 1983. It was the band's breakthrough album, establishing them as one of the top metal acts of the 1980s. On the other mic today, you might think he's red hot, but he will always be Mr. Green Jeans to me. Welcome back to the show, Mark Evers. Mark, how you doing, my friend? Oh, I am absolutely fantastic. Uh, thank you for that incredible uh, introduction. <laughs> you know, at least I implied some people think you're attractive. Mr. Green Jeans was a legend to Captain Kangaroo, and who's fucking cooler than Captain Kangaroo? Mr. Rogers. No. <laughs> no, man. Agree to disagree. Yeah, so uh, you were obviously a, a part of seasons one and two. You were one of the first people that uh, jumped on the show. And uh, now you're here for uh, for season three. We're going to be talking about a metal classic. So last time we, we talked about Danzig and we talked about ACDC. So two, two ends of the spectrum as far as sales <laughs> goes, that's for sure. Uh, and this one, somewhere in the middle, I would say. Probably closer to the ACDC than the Danzig side. Tell me, how did uh, Shout of the Devil enter your life? Does the name Jeff Bacon ring a bell at all to you? Yeah, I remember Jeff. Yeah, so, you know, we went to high school with him. Actually, I had known him since fifth grade. Um, he used to live down the street from me in South Daytona. And um, I remember one night, uh, sometime in 84, I was spending the night at his house. Um, I remember he had already fallen asleep. Um, I was in the living room watching Night Flight. I don't know if you remember uh, that show on USA. Yeah. Um, anyway, like, you know, with the advent of MTV, uh, a lot of other networks were doing video shows as counter-programming and Night Flight was something that played on USA, I think, Friday and Saturday nights. Uh, it was like videos from like 11 p.m. to 4 a.m. or something like that. Um, you know, anyway, a video comes on, looks like something out of a Mad Max movie. It was the Looks That Kill video, pretty much instantly hooked. You know, it was like 10 years old. So a short time later, a cassette ended up in my possession. I don't remember exactly how I came across it, but I just remember playing that thing literally until the writing came off of it. And this was before uh, cassettes were like clear, because I think that kind of ended up being later on. And now, interesting note, the first clear cassette I ever got, Theater of Pain. So, <laughs> but that was, you know, that wasn't actually my first exposure to crew. That came on Night Flight uh, as well. Um, Livewire was a video that came out, I don't know, 83 or something. So, um, And that was in rotation at some point, obviously prior to them releasing the Looks at Kill video. Um, I remember seeing that on there. That was memorable. You know, Vince, the red leather pants, uh, they set Nikki Six on fire. Anyway, I think, and if I recall correctly, like it was that same you know, night or whatever. I saw that video for the first time, first time seeing Molly Crew, first time I'd ever heard Iron Maiden 2, Flight of Icarus video. So I think they were playing like back to back. That was uh, was kind of the story of my introduction to the crew and also uh, the Shot at the Devil album. I, I don't quite remember how I ended up with it. I also had this on, on cassette and I think the same thing. I saw one of the videos and I want to say that my neighbor had originally bought the tape and then he didn't like it. And so he gave it to me and I'd listened to the shit out of this record. So this was, I didn't quite understand at this point that there were different genres of music. Uh, I, I, you know, you couldn't really articulate it at that point. Uh, but I, I think this is when I first started, I, I was listening to a lot of heavy metal before I knew that that was a thing. So this is when uh, I would have been listening to Def Leppard's Pyromania and uh, cause I remember that and that and Motley Crue were probably the two that I listened to the most at the time, but also uh, Quiet Riot's Mental Health. 
I think Twisted Sisters, Stay Hungry, uh, and a few other things. But the, the Motley Crue, just this is one that was was on a loop for a while. And then lost that tape, and then I think got back into Motley Crue a little bit later. So I think when they released Girls, 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 which is not an album that's really held up but uh, at the time. So I remember having... That was one of the few bands I had the the whole back catalog for at one point. But this uh, this had always been my favorite of theirs. Now, after watching The Dirt over the summer, I did listen to the first record a lot. For some reason, that just spoke to me at the time because it's I think just a, a a janglier record, you know. So it's this this was is I think the better record. But there's just something raw about that first one that was really appealing to me just recently. So this is my favorite by them and really one of my all-time favorite records. Uh, and I think always hard to tell if it holds up or if it's just the nostalgia propping it up for me. <laughs> well, we know Motley Crue is your all-time favorite band. I mean, they were your favorite band when we first met. So um, I could see why uh, you would be concerned about the nostalgia factor on it. So Yeah, yeah. One of those, one of those things. So let's go ahead and get into the old track by track analysis. Uh, we're going to start with side one, song one, in the beginning. So this is a little bit of a teaser track, so it doesn't really sound like anything else on the record. That's more of like an, an introduction, and it's properly creepy, and it's mainly just synthesizers. I don't think there's any actual guitar, drum, or anything on that. And it's more of a spoken word kind of thing, and it's I, I think was credited to Alistair Fiend, and it was actually voiced by Nikki Six, if I'm remembering things correctly. I didn't do any research on that, but that's just, let's say, million-year-old memory, so it was Nikki Six doing it. Sort of sets the template for what you're going to hear, kind of introduces you to the world, let's say. It's fairly short, but it's just a fantastic way to open up this record. I remember listening to this. I was in Michigan for the summer, and I didn't realize but my aunt could hear it. And so she heard this opening and came, and she was like, what are you guys listening to? And she was really mad. And, and then she was like, how she was flustered by what it was. And I think I, I somehow made the point that they were shouting at the devil and not shouting with the devil. And that somehow worked. And she just left and let us listen to Motley Crue. Uh, what do you think about this one? Meh is kind of the, the word that comes to mind. As a 10-year-old kid, it was a little scary. Um, I think the rumor that I had heard about it was that it was Anton LaVey that had done the voiceover, the Church of Satan guy. You know, this came out pretty early on the whole, you know, metal music is satanic kind of cultural phase that we went through a few years before the PMRC thing. But I'm sure this was one of the initial embers that started that fire, so... Oh, yeah, without a doubt. So I know they, they had to change the album cover. So I have this on vinyl, and it has just the pentagram that you can't quite see on the black cover. But my cassette tape had the what was supposed to be the inlay with the four pictures of them. And I think there's still the pentagram in the center of that, but they, it was a, a different look that they ended up putting out. All right, so that goes on to our first proper track, the title track, Shout at the Devil. Yeah. 
And what are your thoughts on this one? I love that riff. I love the kind of the shout chorus part. You know, the drums had kind of a really cool gallop. This was my favorite track on the album, you know, when I first got it. I think Vince had a, a unique vocal style that was 80% unintelligible. Um, <laughs> you know, normally uh, when you hear a singer, you can pick out, you know, kind of most of the words to a song, especially after you've heard it, you know, many times. I've heard the song a million times and can only pick out a handful of words and bits of phrases that I'm certain uh, I would, you know, I know what he's saying. I'm pretty sure uh, I've taken a look at the lyrics many years ago. I don't really recall any of them, though. I try to look up lyrics in preparation for the show, but I did not do that for this album because it's kind of pointless, I felt. Because <laughs> this is exactly, there was a lot of like mystery and metal music where you're trying to figure out what the lyrics mean. And this is one that I, everybody I knew heard every song differently. And when you looked at the real lyrics, it was like, ah, okay. You know? <laughs> so, I mean, other than, you know, he's a wolf screaming lonely in the night, I don't trust my ears on anything, any other words in this song. And then maybe, and then the chorus, that would be about it. Yeah. I think the, you know, it was funny. So I just came back. I had a long drive today. I got to listen to, to the whole album again, kind of in the car, which is really a, a good place to listen to music. So you can kind of focus on it. I was surprised at how much, like every single song. And again, talking about the lyrics, I have no idea what he's saying, but I can say words and phrases and stuff just with the whole song. Yeah. <laughs> you can do your own lyrics to every every song, kind of. You, right. You're singing along, but probably not with the words he was singing. Yeah. Yep. But yeah, so this is just such a terrific, that opening riff is so great. So, and I think the, the transition from in the beginning, which like I said, is all just kind of synthesizers into this actual guitar and then right into the chorus at the beginning. And then you get to hear just, you know, those big dumbass drums from Tommy Lee, uh, the, you know, the proficient bass playing of Nikki Six. And uh, and I think, you know, Mick Mars is, is an underappreciated guitar player because I think the problem with metal is everybody was about the flash or the, or the technique. And at least on this record and the record before, he was just doing that Angus Young thing where he was writing songs that people would remember. He didn't have quite the ego. He was pretty much the quiet man. And, you know, most of the time it was you had the, the front man and then the guitar player as the two big personalities in a band. And in this band, it was the bass player just because he wrote the songs and then the drummer just because he had that larger than life personality and the quiet man in this band was the guitar player and that was a pretty rare thing for metal and i think he gets a little bit overlooked but uh, at least on this record you can really just hear a lot of great stuff that he was coming in with i really like the song this was never my favorite song but i i really like this one and it's a it's a fantastic opener let's say beyond that you know talking you mentioned the first album and um, one thing that I was really blown away with with this song and to a lesser extent in the beginning is you can definitely hear the improved production. Just the sound quality of it is, again, it loses some of that rawness of the first one. Yeah, you could tell the production was really dialed in. I had a much better budget because I know that first one they did on their own and then it got what picked up and remixed by Elektra. So, but they had recorded that for their own what leather leather records and Le print leather records, yeah, yeah. So this one, it, and it sounds it sounds great, and and uh, you could see why it was it was the the hit that it was. That brings us on to the next track, "Looks That Kill."
this was a one that was released. This is, I believe, the video. Is this the video you were talking about? Is this the first one that you saw? Looks that kill. Yeah, that was my first exposure to this album. I didn't realize they had a new album out. I certainly wasn't attuned to album release schedules and that sort of thing. I'd seen the Livewire video before that, uh, but this was the first time I'd seen or heard anything off of this album. Okay, because I know they had a couple of videos, and I know that this this was uh, this was one of them, and and there's just some mean mean riffage going on for Mick Mars in this album and uh, this song, and then we see one of the things that one of uh, Tommy Lee's go-to moves where he's playing the bell of the cymbal, and I know you you play drums, so there's probably a better way to explain that because you know Tommy Lee was was the guy that would go for the cowbell more than a lot of other people, and he would also do like you could hear him hitting more of that top part of the cymbal, and I thought like, that's a kind of a, a, a one of his distinctive moves, let's say, and I just this is is such a, a great song i mean it's just again lyrics don't mean a whole lot but there's not a whole lot lacking in this song that's for sure what do you think all these years later um after probably more than a thousand listens literally i'll still jam on this one when it comes on i'm very much sick and tired of like you shook me all night long uh this is one that i still uh will turn up after listening through to the whole album earlier today i actually went back and listened to this one again and uh you know it's funny because uh, like many songs that that are on some of these albums, like there's somewhere in a strip club in America right now, this song is on deck and coming up in the next 20 minutes. <laughs> um, talking more about the music, you know, and the musicianship, as you mentioned, like Mick Mars, incredibly underrated. I think this is a genre-defining guitar riff. Not really considered in that class, but it really is. So best song on the album, probably uh, my favorite Motley song, period. Um, this one's kind of like the Motley Crue version of Inner Sandman. It's heavy. It's very hooky. Um, and again, I think it's probably most people's kind of first exposure to the crew. Uh, this was, I believe this was the song that kind of started to break them. Yeah. And so is this the one where there's like ninjas and, and, and stuff in the video? <laughs> no, this is the one where they're chasing around some sort of She-Ra, He-Man, Princess Woman kind of a thing. And no, you're thinking of looks that kid or, uh, too young, young to fall. fall. I, yeah, I got some notes about the video on that. We can <laughs> we'll, we'll dig that one up a few tracks down the road. So let's go ahead and move on to track four, Bastard. What do you think about this one? Uh, again, when I went back uh, and listened to this album to prepare for uh, the podcast, I was surprised to discover that this was actually the shortest track on the album, barring the instrumental and the opener. So that was kind of surprising. Pretty cool drum intro, uh, how they kind of faded that in. Again, going back to the production improvements over the previous album, I thought that was cool. Tommy had kind of an interesting start-stop, some of the drum fills in there. And again, completely unintelligible lyrics. Um, have no idea what the song is about or any of the words other than, again, with a title like Bastard, of course, it appealed to a 10-year-old kid. Yeah, and I think this is probably the heaviest song on the album. There's other songs that I think are also, obviously, they have great, great riffs and something, but this one just feels heavy and that I could see that if somebody was putting together a, a tribute to Motley Crue, that this would be covered by a much heavier band. This was be, would This would be the one that you know, like Motorhead would go for or something. Yeah, I could see that. Or maybe um, that and Red Hot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, there, there's no shortage of heavy songs, but I just feel like this is a little bit heavier than than the rest of the record. Probably the, short, or the, the shortest actual track, let's say. And 
And one of the things that this made me realize listening to it a bunch of times and then obviously not looking up the lyrics, but other than the title of this song, I don't think there's any profanity on this record. Yeah. Uh, hadn't really occurred to me, but I think, yeah, I think you're right. Just, then I think it was just less common for albums, even by bands that were heavier or edgier or whatever to really include any kind of profanity. So yeah, that's probably why it stuck out as a stuck out to me when I was a kid was just the name of the song. Yeah. And so, I mean, and that's even just a, a mild profanity and depending on how it's used could be used you know, on television, even at that time. And so I just kind of assumed there was more, there's the, the, the you know, consider that bastard dead. And it's like, I, I'm really going to screw you. He kept, he keeps saying, and it sounds a little bit funny because it's like, this is where you would expect there to be a little bit of swearing because you're not going to release this song, you know, and this is before you had to worry about putting any kind of warning on your record. So it was, uh, you know, that that could maybe restrict sales, even though this album does have that uh, warning may contain backwards masking on it. <laughs> does it really? So yeah, I would yeah. think they would, they would have loved to have that sticker on their album. Again, that was a guaranteed ticket to platinum to put that sticker on your album. Tell that to Wasp. I don't think it worked for them. So. <laughs> Okay, so we go on to track five, God Bless the Children of the Beast. This is more or less an instrumental. There's just the the title is, is sung at the very end. Uh, and so this is Mick Mars getting to show off just a little bit. And I think this has just a great guitar tone. And it feels like he's having fun a little bit because it seems like he's setting up one part of the track and then playing another part of the track, which obviously it's, I think this is all him, but there's probably what, three or four different guitar sounds going on. And so it has kind of that almost a acoustic sound at the beginning, but then the electric through line. And I really like this one. This is where maybe a ballad would come but they just uh, I, it's it's a kind of an odd choice to put this in here it's this short little thing and i'm not really sure i i like it i don't think it's necessarily superfluous i don't think it should not be on the record and uh look at you know this record is only like 35 minutes long so it's not like it's overstaying its welcome uh, i don't have a whole lot to say about it because this is where my lack of being able to play any type of instrument comes in you know doesn't really come in handy talking about instrumentals but what do you think about this one not only did it kind of creep me out because of the title when i was a kid i just wasn't into the music so i can probably appreciate it more now um, but I still think it's just, it's the weakest thing on the album, you know, and that includes in the beginning. Um, I oh. think they could, I, they probably could have dropped this. I don't think it would have made any difference. I, this, that was clearly like, Hey, we've got an extra two minutes that we need to fill the tape up. So let's just do something. Yeah. It, it has a little bit of that feel to a little bit of filler. And you can see the fact that where it's placed on the record, I think is pretty telling, especially when you're talking about on tape or on vinyl. So that second to last track on the side one. So that brings us to the final track on side one, Helter Skelter, the Beatles cover. When again,
what are your thoughts here? I knew this was a Beatles cover, but I don't recall when I heard the original, but it was many years after hearing this version. You know, when I was 10, uh, the Beatles were still kind of a big thing, you know, with older kids and stuff. I was never really a fan. I can absolutely appreciate everything that they accomplished and, you know, kind of where they are in the history of you know, popular music and everything else. I just never got into their music. So I was, I was more of a Stones person. Okay. So when I was a kid, I was really into the Beatles. Like my folks had Beatles records and I would listen to them, but I primarily listened to the earlier stuff. So I had never heard this song that I'm aware of. I'm probably, I have, but so the first time I've heard that I heard this song was this version, Motley Crue's version. And I find a lot of times with covers like that, where if I hear it originally as the cover, and then hearing the original and then going back, it's like that sometimes that original cover is lacking. And like my best example of that is the Wrathchild America's version of Time from Pink Floyd, which I hadn't heard the Pink Floyd version. I heard the Wrathchild America version first. And I loved that song. And then I heard the Pink Floyd version. It's like, oh, okay, that's how it's supposed to sound. And then going back and then now the, the Wrath Child, well, it's been a million years since I've heard it, but it, it really felt lacking. Uh, and it was almost embarrassing how much I liked it. This one holds up for me. So even though I've now obviously heard the Beatles version, there's something about just that their approach. This doesn't sound like it doesn't belong on the album. So it's still, you know, Mick Mars does his, his magic with his guitar. And one of the things I appreciate, so just going back and listening to those first four records, after having Spotify, I just went through and kind of listened to him. And he has a really unified guitar tone for each album. Like each album, he sounds a bit different. And I feel like if you, if you were to just play me an outtake that didn't make the record, I could probably guess which record it belonged to just based on the guitar tone. And so this still fits because it doesn't, sometimes you'll go back and listen to those because, you know, you're, you know, we were at 10, 12 years old when this came out and okay, you know, it sounds fine then. And then you listen later and it's like, oh, you can really hear the difference. You can tell they didn't write the song. There's a little bit of, you know, just sonically, it's a little bit different. And this one still, I think really fits well and I think fits into the flow and it's a great ending to side one. So even though I don't have, even though I, I was a, a big Beatles fan as a, as a little kid, uh, I, I didn't bring any baggage with this. And then hearing it later, I still thought this song really holds up as I think they, they made it their own. This song's been covered by a lot of other bands as well with this one in particular too. Again, this is still the one that I kind of reference as being the, the one version of it that I like, you know, around that time, I think, uh, you know, them doing a Beatles cover, them doing this song, you know, and the, you know, the connection with Charles Manson with the Helter Skelter thing. I think part of the song choice uh, and I know, I think Nikki's supposed to be a big Beatles fan, but I'm going to guess that some of the song choice had to do, had to do with that kind of connection to make it kind of more spooky and, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. I think there's, there's a bit of that, but uh, you know, there, there are people who feel that uh, Helter Skelter was maybe the first heavy metal song ever. I know there's, that's super debatable, obviously, but uh, I, I think that also is part of it. That brings us to the end of side one of Motley Crue's Shout at the Devil on I Fucking Love This Record with my special guest, Mark Evers. And uh, like I said, we've uh, we've done a couple of shows. We're talking about making our own podcast. So we can say this now. We'll see if we actually get around to doing it. You and I went to uh, high school together. We listened to a ton of music together. We went to a ton of shows together. And so now we're going to we're thinking about launching our own podcast where we're going to go talk about heavy metal records from the 1980s. Is that okay to say here or do, I, do you want me to cut that out? That's fine that you can include that. It's funny when I think about doing a podcast, looking through all the ones that you've done, there's got to be some sort of connection with me. Obviously, our relationship makes me want to listen to it um, or it's got to be an album 
too that that connects with me as well. So I don't know if anybody will care to listen to it. I'm really looking forward to it because I think it'll just be fun just us kind of revisiting some of the stuff that maybe neither one of us had thought about in years. So I think it'll be fun. Yeah. So we still need to come up with a name for it. I, I had a, a in my head the working title was uh, Derek and Mark talk shit. But I would like to uh, have maybe one podcast title that doesn't have swear words in it. So, you know, we'll, we'll see where we go from there. <laughs> That'll probably make it a little easier to get other people on board. So although, you know, I was I was thinking about the name of this podcast and, you know, the I fucking love this record without the word in there. It's not the same podcast. It doesn't feel the same. So and probably not going to attract the people that you want to talk to about it. So I had that is more like a concept slash working title. And I figured I would come up with something else in its place, but just something about it appealed to me because it's not just, oh, these, these are some of my favorite, you know, I wanted to talk to people about a, a record that they fucking loved and just something about that. It's like, all right, I, you know, I can't really advertise it on Facebook. I found out, but I, I think we can come up with something that's maybe a little more user-friendly. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll see how that goes. Well, hopefully we can come up with some interesting content. Yeah, well, I, I'm sure we can. We'll see if anybody else gives a shit about it. But I think we'll have it. We'll have a good time, and that's that's really what matters. Absolutely. And now let's hear a word from one of our friends. Hey, Ween heads and music fans, this is Rory from Weencast Podcast. I'm excited to announce the Weencast Summer Spectacular Ween Fan Story Contest. That's right. We want your Ween fan stories. Finalists will be presented on an upcoming episode of our podcast, and the winner will also get an awesome handcrafted cutting board accented with a beautiful Boognish brand. Shane here. The Weencast Summer Spectacular Ween Fan Story Contest works like this. Record yourself telling your wildest, coolest, raddest Ween fan story, five minutes or less, in a wave or MP3 format. We need audio recordings, people. Email your submission to weencastpodcast at gmail.com. This could be a crazy story about something that happened at a Ween concert, how you first heard Ween, or really any story that you have that has to do with Ween. The deadline is Monday, September 7th, Labor Day, and we are looking to present finalists and announce a winner later that month. See ya! And now, back to the show. Let's flip the record over. Let's go on to track seven, Red Hot. This is a great opening for side two. Uh, I love how the drums just kind of come right in at you. And one of the things that I, I always kind of liked about uh, the transition from six to seven, especially if you're listening to it on CD or on streaming when it's just, when, when you don't have the actual break, because Helter Skelter has you, at the end of it, you can hear what sounds like uh, the drumsticks hitting the ground. Like he just he threw them up and then they, they drop. Something about how it goes from the drumsticks hitting the ground to the way that the drums come in on this because it, it leads with that drum intro. It always sounds to me like he's like, oh shit, we have one more song to play. And then he picks them up and then just really <laughs> quickly starts playing, which I'm sure nobody else hears, but that's just what I hear. This is just, uh, this this song rocks. This is a, a just a cool tune. Uh, I can't, I can't, did they release this one? Is this did this have a video? No, this one. No. This one didn't have a single. It was just. It was just a yeah, an album okay. track. All right. And what do you think about this one? Again, another uh, really cool Tommy open. You know, Tommy gets a lot of credit for being a personality. 
Um, you know, I think some of uh, the other things in his life, like the, you know, the Pam Anderson thing and all the craziness kind of gets in the way of the recognition he should get as a drummer. Um, I'd put Tommy like at probably top five all-time greatest rock drummers, certainly, especially in metal. Others out there that have like more complex chops, you know, you think about like the guy in Dream Theater, Neil Peart, that sort of thing. Tommy Lee's a fucking monster. You know, I saw that video he did with uh, Pam Anderson. I think he's really good at playing the drums because he has a third drumstick. Um, <laughs> but uh, no, that guy, like, yeah, from a drumming standpoint, it's interesting. I think you touched on it earlier is, you know, you got some big personalities in that band in, you know, Nikki and, and Vince and Tommy. The musicianship of the band often gets overlooked, um, especially with Tommy and Mick. I think Nikki is a, you know, basically a, you know, kind of a meat and potatoes bass player. He does an okay job. He gets a lot of the musician's credit because he writes the lyrics and stuff. You know, I think Mick writes all, I mean, Mick writes all his guitar parts and probably writes all the riffs as well. You know, back to this song again, it's just a really cool way to open a, open a side of an album. You know, it's loud and it's fast. It's good. There was a time there when Tommy Lee would guest on, on tracks, especially in the early 90s, it felt like, or even mid 90s where if somebody wanted to put out a song that just kind of rocked, they would either get Tommy Lee or they'd get Dave Grohl. It's like if you if you had if so if you heard about somebody guesting on drums, it was one of those two guys. And like you said there's other people who are more technically proficient or whatever, but there's just something about his playing that just works. If you if you want a big dumb rock song you want tommy lee playing drums on it that's for sure and uh, like i said if, if it wasn't for the fact that nikki six was writing all the lyrics he would be the quiet guy so i mean if, if vince neal and, and mick mars wrote the songs you wouldn't even know who fucking nikki six was yeah tommy got like i said he's just he is a monster player and i think this song really kind of highlights uh, highlights that so agreed so let's move on to too young to fall in love your thoughts here again another really cool drum intro starts off with just tommy um you know as i was listening back uh i kind of had forgotten how many of the songs on this album kind of started out that way a ton of compression on the recording you know that was kind of the du jour of the day for for out you know for metal recording is put a lot of compression on you can really hear it on this track Tom Worman, uh, who was the producer, did a you know a lot of early '80s LA metal. Did a really good job, and I think again, you know, thinking about the arrangements uh, of some of these songs, were pretty ahead of their time. Listening back to that, thinking about the production, and everything else, you know, the sound was just good. I remember the video really well. The karate and nunchucks, uh, you know, again, ten years old. What's not to love about that? Uh, Tommy eating the rice yeah. at the end of the video, and then <laughs> spitting it out at that guy. Yeah. Um, and then kind of just walking down the alley and Vince kind of singing and prancing around. Again, we, you know, we talked about Mick a little bit. Really good guitar solo in this song. So looks like he'll, you know, probably my like the top five favorite Motley songs. Uh, really like the the chorus. Not so much the lyrics because they just kind of repeat the song title over and over again. But the cadence is really cool. And again, just really cool guitar solo from Mick on this one. So another podcast that I listened to called the Tune Styles Podcast had put a thing out on Twitter asking for your favorite 80s metal song. 
I couldn't really think of my favorite 80s metal song, but I listed this one as the most representative 80s metal song. Like if you had to explain 80s metal to somebody, I think you could play this song and they would get it because it's got just the, you know, the big badass drums at the beginning. It's got a great riff to it. It has dodgy lyrics and just the whole package in it's like three and a half minutes. This is a perfect pop single. Uh, wrapped up in a metal song and it just it just hits all those things that you want from your 80s metal uh, and so this was before you know the whole glam thing really came through and so you know they didn't really soften up I mean this is uh, this is still a good rock and roll record every every song we've talked about here is, is heavy um, and one of the things I, I also noticed there's no ballad on this record and the closest we come is the last one. We'll talk about that in a bit. I think this is just a perfect, this is a time capsule for 80s metal and still holds up. It's hard to try to uh, reduce an entire decade down to one song, but I think you could make a lot worse choices than this one. Yeah, this was really before the formula of, hey, we're going to release a heavy song and then we're going to do a ballad. And I think that started with the next album for these guys uh, with Home Sweet Home. Yeah, the interesting point again that there was no nothing on the, on the album was light. Like even that God bless the children of the beast thing, you know, was kind of spooky and that sort of thing. But uh, everything on the album was heavy. And this was a pretty good, uh, I think this would be a pretty good representative of kind of eighties metal. So on to track nine, knock them dead kid. Not a whole lot to say about this one. I, I like this song, but there's nothing uh, nothing about this song really that that stands out for me. Uh, it's just it's a it's a great rock track. This is you know there's nothing. If I'm gonna skip anything on this record, like if I'm listening to it on CD and I'm just not in the mood to, you know, I don't have 35 whole minutes at my disposal. Uh, you know, maybe I'll, I'll fast forward. You know, God bless the children of the beast or uh, or something. But I don't skip past the song, but I don't have any notes for this song. You know, and I've listened to this record a ton in the last week. I, you know, what do you think about this one? Well, funny enough, we were talking about like just the preparation for this and the notes that I had for this one. I just had two things. It basically just a cool chorus. And um, I really like the double bass drumming at the end as well. So, again, another standout for Tommy. Um, I think it's a pretty yeah, it's, again, a pretty Good song. As close to filler as there is on this album. Still good. All right, then. So what about uh, track 10, 10 Seconds to Love? This was the longest song on the album, which I was I was surprised about that. Um, if you had asked me uh, before kind of looking at the track length, I probably would have picked Dangerous, the longest track. Again, like Knock 'Em Dead Kid, a little bit of a throwaway song, pretty racy lyrics, uh, certainly for the time. Um, it's a it's a decent song. Wasn't the urban legend that there that Vince Neil had sex with somebody in the studio to this song? 
that there there's some kind of that you you can hear something in there somewhere or I may be, I may be confusing that with something else but again I didn't do any additional research. Well, you know, again like most of their songs I have no idea what the lyrics are and haven't looked at them in years and years. I so listening to that earlier today I was listening through kind of picking out what I could and I was like they may be talking about raping somebody. I'm not entirely sure but that's kind of the I, the I lyrics just, seem to point to that. <laughs> I, d- I remember there's, you know, so something about bring a groupie or maybe bring two. And that's all. And that, because is this the one where they say, you know, uh, I, I can't wait to tell the boys all about you yeah. or something? There's a little bit of that, like, okay, that's that's a little bit weird. At the time, it didn't feel weird. It, you know, I think we, we put up with, with a lot of different things from our, our heavy metal artists that we probably wouldn't accept anymore. This is, uh, you know, just the coke snorting, groupie shagging song that you have to have at some point so just uh, you know a big dick swagging kind of thing well let's just pretend that the that the albums were written in chronological order you could tell that there was not as much gas in the tank as there was uh you know on the like the first three tracks (laughs) i still think side two is really good but anyway so it's going to bring us to our final track track 11 danger Maybe the closest thing we get to a ballad on the record, and it's really kind of a, a half warning, half love letter to Los Angeles. So the two things that come closest to being a ballad on this record, one of them is to Satan and the other one is to L.A., which is you know kind of the same thing, I guess. So this is the the slowest track. It's obviously not the longest track. You mentioned the one before that. And I really I always like a, a slow closer. I think that can work. And this is I feel a little bit longer. Like you said, I, I would have thought this was the longest track. I think it works. So it's the I like the way they sing the, the chorus to it. And it's uh, it's not like a sappy love song to take you out. And it just it feels more like um, this is where we're from. This is what we've done. This is where we're going. Kind of. It's. A, I, th- I think it's an interesting song. And again, I was really surprised. It just didn't hit me until going over that there there are no ballads. So there was a ballad on on the first record. So there were Starry Eyes, and then obviously Home Sweet Home is what really launched them into the stratosphere on the next record. Uh, but that they didn't write an even standard ballad for this one, I think is I think is pretty cool. And I never really put that together. It didn't didn't occur to me until we were preparing for this. What are your thoughts on this one? You know, again, I agree. It was kind of ballady, but not really. I think this was probably what would have been considered the ballad before that was the big formula. You know, like uh, the Is This Love by White Snake. That's kind of the, when I think of the quintessential rock album ballad. It was a good song, and I think kind of a typical ender for an early 80s era record. Um, you know, not the not the biggest, loudest, fastest, but kind of kind of go out on a little bit more of a mellow note. So it was a good song. All right. So what are your final thoughts on this record? So listening back, I was really surprised again how much I think that this is really it was a it's a much bigger part of my kind of musical DNA than I would have thought as I was listening back to the whole album. Every single song I could just remember remember listening to it, uh, remember talking about it, you know, and that sort of thing. So. Um, I'm not sure how you went back and listened. I listened on Spotify. Apparently, in uh, about 10 years ago, they had remastered or re-released this. 
um, with some bonus stuff on it, uh, including an earlier version of Louder Than Hell. Um, I guess the original title was Hotter Than Hell. Yeah. Um, I, th- I think it actually ended up better than the version that ended up on theater, but that was part of the recordings uh, for this album, so it has a very similar feel. Um, there's another track called I Will Survive that was also pretty good. Uh, again, you know, recorded uh, at the same time as this album. I didn't have any exposure to either one of them uh, before just this past week listening to them. So, but I like both of them. And again, I thought they would, I, I would have loved them when I was a kid. I listened to those a couple of years back, whenever it was, they put that out. Cause I ended up, uh, cause up until maybe two years ago, I was still using my iPod. I loved that thing. And so, but it would be a matter of, I'd have to track down the music and then download it and then upload it to the iPod, you know, that kind of thing. And so I finally just said, all right, I guess I'm going to join the 21st century. And I, I got Spotify. Uh, so that's what I've been listening to. But I, like I said, I have this on vinyl and every once in a while when I'm on a Friday or Saturday night, I'll have a couple of beers and that's one that, that'll get pulled out every once in a while. So I have revisited it. I did listen to that with the, with the bonus tracks. I don't, you know, a lot of times when it comes to albums with the bonus tracks, like I'll listen to those things once and then never again, cause I'm just so used to the album as it stands. So for this, I just listened to the original uh, the original tracks. I didn't I didn't go with the uh, with the bonus tracks. This album is kind of funny because, like I said, I I had it originally when it first came out, and then lost that, and then had it again a couple of years later, and then I think it got stolen because Tara had a party and somebody stole all my tapes, and then I didn't buy this initially on CD. But then did later, but then sold it and then bought it on vinyl. And then it's just one of those, it kind of, it's kind of come in and out of my life. And every time it comes back in, I was like, oh, right, I really like this record. And sometimes I almost forget because Motley Crue has that reputation. And it's sort of the best and the worst of 80s metal. So they have some great records. They also, you know, everything that came after this, those next three have bright spots, but are fairly mediocre. It's like with Girls, 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 I think the title track is, you know, the the quintessential, quintessential strip club song. And I think Wild Side fucking rocks. The rest of that album is eh. But it's one that I just remember so strongly from being, you know, 12 years old when it came out. And then every time I've gone back to it, it still, it kind of jumps forward a little bit. Just, I think it holds up. I think it's a a legitimately great record. Uh, I think it's a pretty important record for that scene. Unfortunately, I think their next record, when they went with the glam thing, you know, I think Theater Pain could have been a much better record than it was, but, you know, they... We're doing other things, I think, yeah. <laughs> yeah, at the yeah. time. So, are you, what what year were you born again? Are you two years older than me? No, we're the same age. This came out in 1984. We were both born in 1972. Simple math tells you we were 12 when this came out. I've been doing my math wrong all day long. So that's that's the way my day's been going. Because I was thinking I was 10. <laughs> You're right, I was 12. Um, again, had a really cool look for a 12 year old kid. Just kind of that post apocalyptic next evolution of kiss you know add uh, the pentagram uh, so definitely like an a plus in presentation um, yeah i think they've always been one of those bands that was really considered more flash than substance um and i don't think that that's really a fair assessment their great songs are really great and there are a bunch of them on this album so uh, i know we talked a little bit about the netflix movie the dirt you know i think they so missed an opportunity to do that uh, well you know the costumes again i would have given them an a plus on that on the story it just didn't have a very good perspective on it you know when you compare it to something like bohemian rhapsody which came out at the same time um it just looked really cheesy like some made for tv stephen king kind of movie 
Um, I guess that was based on the budget. From what I understand, you know, Bohemian Rhapsody had a had a real studio behind it and and uh, about three times the budget of the dirt. But the book was so great, like it's such a great read, the way they did it and the way they were really honest about one another and everything else. Um, I had really high hopes uh, for that movie that just didn't really pan out. But one of the bright spots of the movie was the little bit that they focused around this tour and stuff like that. Again, the costumes and everything else. My favorite part about that was when you see them on the soundstage making the video and how silly those costumes looked because it had that different because it wasn't the video. It was them making the video, if that makes any sense. Because I remember thinking that was the coolest shit ever as a kid. And I remember having the pictures up on my wall from Hit Parader or whatever uh, from those photo shoots because there was one where Nikki Six was covered in fake blood. You know, that's, that whole thing was just cool. That was just cool shit. And seeing it where they were, you know, that was not what they were just walking around wearing. You know, that was specifically costumes for that video and, you know, a subsequent photo shoot, right? And seeing it when they were in between takes and how new everything looked and how goofy everything looked was awesome. I love that because it was just that little bit behind the mirror because it didn't have the smoke and it didn't have the the sheen to it where it made sense in that little bit of the, you know, the universe for that three and a half minutes. And just seeing it in kind of, let's say, quote unquote, real life, it was like, oh, that just looks good, you know, because Mick Mars, the guy playing Mick Mars looks so uncomfortable in what he's wearing. And and I like that part. Yeah, I agree. Because I thought the guy that they had playing Tommy just nailed at least that public persona, like the big puppy dog. Uh, I don't think he got quite the darkness of Tommy Lee because that wasn't, that's not a part of what's shown. I thought the guy who played Nikki Six did a, a pretty good job for with what he had, but I think they just tried to do too much. If you want to do everything, you got to make that a mini series. If you're not going to do everything, focus on one part of it. Give me a two hour movie that makes sense. You know, t- show me the beginning until they go on their first tour or something, you know, focus on the most interesting aspect of that. We know Motley Crue did more than that. It, we're not seeing everything. Show me what's worth seeing that you can show me in two hours. Yeah. I, one of the cool things about seeing it again, like that scene that you were talking about, there's not a whole lot of quality video footage of those guys from around this era. Um, you know, a lot of other bands, you can find pro shot recordings and things like that nothing really with these guys so i think part of that probably has to do with kind of just how they perform live and a couple of years ago there was uh there was a vh1 show called remaking the band where they got everybody together this was around the time that vince came back vince sound i think he's, his voice has a good sound when they record it in the studio um, but i remember watching watching them go through that like they record his vocals like a single word at a time and then they piece them all together uh using pro tools because um, and I know you've seen those guys live a couple times. Like Vince Neil sounds terrible. Like he really, he just can't sing at all. It brings the whole band down. And um, there's some funny videos out there where they've taken his vocals out and put them over like James Brown music. Um, <laughs> it's on YouTube. It's a riot. That's kind I'm of just, the thing. You know, he sings every third word. And that was back in the day when he was still relatively fit. So now it's like, it's like every sixth word he gets out. 
Yeah, I got. Yeah, it's, that's one of my notes too. Again, he, he screaming every third word. Uh, you know, he just doesn't have the lungs. And uh, I think starting on the girls, girls, girls tour, uh, they started bringing in backup vocals. You know, on stage, like with the I can't remember what they didn't call them hollow notes or fire and ice or whatever the two girls were. And I think McMars ended up marrying one, but uh, trying to cover up for his vocals. I actually have tickets to see them with uh, Def Leppard and Joan Jett and Poison in July. They've they were going to reschedule that. Uh, with everything going on. Um, I'm still not sure if I'm going to go see him. Surprisingly enough, I've never seen Motley Crue live. I've seen enough videos of them where I'm like, Ugh, I don't know. But even in this environment with the pandemic and everything going on, being packed into a, a stadium with 40 or 50,000 people, like you know, packed in like sardines, I'm not sure I'm going to do that. So. so Motley Crue was the first band I went to go see live. So that was my, my first concert was them on the Girls, Girls, Girls tour with Guns N' Roses opening. And that's when Tommy Lee had the drum kit that did the 360. No. It, no, that was the, the riser went up and then something. So I think the 360 was later was a was for Dr. Feelgood, maybe. I don't remember. Uh, but so, yeah, I saw them on the Girls, Girls, Girls tour. They were good. But the thing is, I just remember I was blown away by Guns N' Roses. So I remember buying Guns N' Roses T-shirt at the show. Uh, but that was the first band I wanted to go see live. So I went and saw them in the Jacksonville Coliseum in, I think it was like February of 1988. And then I saw them one more time. I swore that was with you because uh, I remember me, it was me and Brant and somebody you else. You saw them on the Dr. Feelgood tour. I remember that. Because you know, at the time they were your favorite band, so that was why you, <laughs> if they were coming to Florida, you'd have to go see that. The thing they were not my favorite band at the time, but I remember. I don't know why we tried to sleep out for tickets just because. I don't know why that was one of the you know, thing we would do every once in a while. But then this was after Ticketmaster had really become Ticketmaster, and that didn't mean anything anymore. And so I remember with we were with Brant, and we drove. We ended up driving to Orlando. We ended up getting decent tickets, but and that, after all that, I was like, I don't even know if I like. Motley Crue anymore. And I didn't like Dr. Feelgood. I did that, that. That's not an album that does anything for me. And so we went and saw it. I swore you were there. I thought it was you, me and, and Brant. Uh, no, I didn't and go I, to that one. And I don't remember who opened warrant maybe opened. I have like zero memory. I just, I remember going and that was by the time, you know, that distance between getting the tickets and seeing the show, I realized just, I didn't care for that band anymore. And I was like, why did I go through all this bother for a band? I don't really like, but yeah, seeing them for the girls, 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 that was great. You know, for me, uh, and you mentioned kind of Mick having a, a distinct guitar tone for every single album. Like the first two albums, you know, were great. And I think if, you know, from a player standpoint, he was switching guitars. So uh, the first album, he was a Les Paul guy. So humbucking pickups. Same, on this one, he, he was playing more like BC Rich, like Warlock, more pointy, like kind of traditional 80 metal, 80s metal guitar. Again, a, a dual humbucking pickup. Starting with... Um, Theater of Pain and, and especially Girls, Girls, Girls and Dr. Feelgood. He switch, he's a Strat guy now. That's all he plays. So single coil pickups. I don't really care for that guitar tone. The guitar tone on this, I think, is genre defining. That was the guitar tone that everybody was going for uh, for the next three or four years after this album came out. And they did it really well. So I think I mentioned earlier, again, just think, listening through this album and thinking, you know, like what a part of, you know, for lack of a better term, my, my own music DNA that this album is was you know was huge you know for all the the shitting on you know how they play live i, w I wish there was more pro shot footage from the era so uh, there's that 83 us festival appearance uh where they played very early on uh the metal day saturday i think they went on right before judas priest 
which of course completely blew them away. Again, you know, Vince ruins the sound. Even back then when he was younger and had more lungs, they just weren't good live and it was all because of Vince. Great in the studio, not a good live sound. No, I think he's always been their their weakest link. Even in the studio, I think his voice is fine, but if you were to put a legitimate singer with the rest of that band, I guess I remember mentioning to somebody like, what if Blackie Lawless sang for Motley Crue? There would be a ton of combustible stuff because he's also a songwriter and just, and I know he and Nikki were in London together at some point because I think everybody in Los Angeles was in London for at least a week. That was the law because Blackie Lawless has such a singular voice and such a great metal voice. And just imagining having a legitimate singer fronting the rest of that band. So, you know, Mick Mars with the dirty guitars, Tommy Lee with those those big ass rock drums and completely adequate playing from 56. <laughs> I, I think Mickey Six is a, is a really good songwriter, especially when he's sober enough to do that. You know, so that's obviously what he's always brought to, to the band is that he he's the one writing the songs. But uh, just, yeah, that's always been my thing. Like, oh man, if they would have just had a, a real fucking singer, how good that would have been. Yeah, Blackie Lawless plays guitar too. So uh, it has a pretty similar guitar, like his guitar, sound throughout you know the first several wasp albums was very similar to this so that would have been that would have been an incredible mixture you know they tried that in what 1990 with john karabi they did that one album without him and i think it sounds good like i other than that hooligans holiday which was the single on it i couldn't even tell you another song uh, off of that album i just wasn't in the mindset to get into it i think it would have been interesting had they continued on with a different singer and where they would have ended up People just wanted that original band so much, not knowing that part of the reason why the original band wasn't there was just because, you know, musically they weren't all up to snuff. That is sadly the case. And obviously, you know, once that band was established as the, the band that it was, that's what people want. So I'm just, yep. saying, you know, if from the beginning, if, if it's somehow uh, a legitimate singer would have been there, that would have been uh, maybe focused on their music a little bit more beyond that. Anyway, we got at least, uh, you know, a, a really good first record. We have a fantastic second record, and that's all we have to worry about today, because that's what we're talking about. So for anybody out there who has been listening to the podcast, if you want to uh, suggest this podcast to your friends, to your family, I would appreciate that. That'd be great. If you want to like or subscribe or review or whatever it is, those things that you're supposed to do to help more people see the show, I would appreciate it. If you want to send me $10,000 in cash i will accept it so <laughs> anyway uh, we appreciate i appreciate you listening and uh, I, I hope you keep coming back and as far as my guest mark um you know we're going to be doing this a little bit more often on a, on a different stage uh and i'm looking forward to that but thank you very much for uh, joining this show once again and uh, we'll talk to you soon goodbye oh, thanks Thank you for listening. You can find all of our episodes at lovethisrecord.com. Intro and outro music by The Ashes of Grissom. And thanks as always to original patron, Mark Evers.